0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So there's a letter from a Roman soldier to his wife dated first century B.C. Fascinating historical letter. It's just before the time of Christ and this soldier. He certainly seems to care for his wife. I'll read you a couple of lines. One line in this letter says, you've told Aphrodisius, don't forget me. How can I possibly forget you? Please do not be worried. That otherwise loving letter also includes this line. If you happen to pre- be pregnant again, if it's a boy, leave it. If it's a girl, throw it out. Say what? Say what? Imagine being the woman reading this and carrying this child. If it's a boy, keep it. It'll be our son. If it's a girl, expose it. Yeah. Leave it outside the city. She'll die of exposure or be cons- consumed by the beast or taken by someone to be a slave or a prostitute or both, up to the gods, I suppose. What do you, what do you think of that? This is not a one-off thing. This is a common occurrence in ancient Rome. It's cultural practice. As you think about it, you might want to respond, that's just wrong, right? I hope some of you are responding that way. That's just wrong. OK, but why is it wrong? I mean, who, who are you to judge this man's culture or his situation? I wonder what this soldier would have said in response if somehow you had the chance to confront him. Imagine you got to to sit with him and be like, bro, you cannot just tell your wife to throw out your daughter to exposure. I have a guess as to what he would say. I'm pretty sure he would say, that's my choice. And according to his culture and the law of his day, it was his lawful, legal Choice. What do you think about that? It's fascinating to realize that the world of this Roman soldier is a world where Christianity had its beginnings. And as Christianity began, it was both radically countercultural and strangely incredibly popular with women because you're not allowed to say thanks to your wife like that in the Church of Jesus Christ. This was in part because it was due to the way Christians thought, the way they thought about God, about themselves, about their bodies, about mercy. So here we are in 2023. It's Sanctity of Life Sunday. At Fountain of Life, we rec- recognize it every year. If you were listening to Romans and thinking, hey, wait, I thought we were going through Mark. We are going through Mark. And if you're longing for Mark, come back next Sunday. Uh, This Sunday is a little bit different. We want to remember uh, this important issue. And at the heart of Sanctity of Life Sunday is remembering that there is a transcendent God who created all things. And he has made human beings of every age and distinction in his image. And therefore, every single human being is worthy of dignity and value, no matter what the cultural moment we may be in says about this group or that group at the time. And after 2,000 years, 2,000 years after the Roman soldier, we're also reminded that though much has changed, much has stayed the same. One thing that has stayed the same, though we may locate the choice in a different place, our culture still finds a way to have a certain kind of choice determine the value of a human life and whether or not it can be disposed of. Another thing that needs to stay the same is Christians need to stand out from the world in how they think. We should be different. So this morning, I want to, I want to take some time together to think about how Christians are supposed to think. From Romans 12, 1 to 2. And these two verses, they're just so incredibly rich. You could call them uh, like the DNA of true worship. It's just like a clear, if you want to call it, a nutshell of Christian living. Just four principles that ought to be in every Christian's life. The nature of true worship, the DNA of true worship. We'll look at that for a minute. But as we're going to see, part of the instruction here, right, was to not be conformed to this world, specifically how this world thinks. You can't be conformed to this world and how it thinks. Christians need to be able to recognize ways the world denies God and His truth and in its thinking and think differently. Think in light of who God is, what He's done for us. So as we unpack some of the truth of these verses together, I want to see this kind of DNA of true worship and then just think a little bit of how The truth of this passage is pertinent to some of those hard issues of our day, right? Abortion, especially today, I want to think about our bodies, and I want to think about mercy from these verses. So first, just getting into the text a little bit, the DNA of true worship. I think there's four principles or pillars you could see here in this text regarding what Christian worship is supposed to look like. So this is just, these should be you know, foundational passions to each one of us. Just starting in 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. That's the first thing to recognize, is this is built on the foundation of the mercies of God. I think what Paul is saying here is, Everything I'm going to talk about in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, about the Christian life, that is all an echo of everything I wrote about from Romans 1 to 11 about how God has been so merciful to us. So it's kind of, how should I live in the light of who God is and what he's done for me in Jesus Christ? Well, this is how I should live. So, so this thing that God has done for us in Christ, it should have an echo in our lives. And, and if you were going to summarize it in one word, Romans 1 to 11, how would you summarize it in one word? Mercy. Mercy. What's mercy? She's having it's just having huge compassion for someone in need and, and doing everything you can to meet that need. And that's what God has done for us. So let's just remember some basics, right? Number one, we are in need, desperate need of God's mercy. Do you know that? I mean, uh, your, your common religion, right, is uh, deal-making with God. God, I'll be pretty good, and then you'll owe me some stuff like forgiveness and an easy life, right? I'll be good. You owe me forgiveness and an easy life. And, and, and it's, it's like the religion we're born with. But, but then for Christians, right, the first thing God shows you a lot of you know this the first thing when, when God really starts speaking to you, the first thing He shows you is how not good you are <laughs> it's how it 's how desperate you, how desperately you need him, how how hopeless you are without him and and as difficult as that is that's that 's usually a sign of his great love for you that He would show you this and so we remember our need for mercy, right we are made in god 's image, but we 've each denied our design and pursued. Rebellious autonomy. That's really at the heart of sin, isn't it? God, I don't need you. I'll do this myself. I don't need you. I'll do this myself. Rebellious autonomy. So we have an honor to give given thanks to the God who has made us and who upholds us every day. I mean, I just this image of him making me and upholding me, and then me taking what he's given him and like trying to slap him in the face with it. It's a picture of my sin in a way. We've each decided we'll make our own way. We choose. We, de- choo- we, we decide right and wrong based on our selfish preferences. And the result is we don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. And I des- we deserve God's justice, his wrath. That's what I deserve. But God has just shown its unfathomable mercy in Jesus Christ, right? This, is, this thrills the heart of a Christian. And we obviously can't preach through Romans 1 through 11 right now. Just two highlights of God's mercy. Look at Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us. Notice when. While we were, what? Still sinners. So what did we deserve at that point? I deserve wrath. And, but what does God give us anyway? While we're hating him, what does he give us? Love, mercy. While I was a sinner, Christ, the Son of God, he died for me. I mean, just to meditate on that, to ponder that, it's unfathomable mercy. Since, therefore, we now been justified by his blood. I know it's theological language, but it's precious. To be justified, right, it's a courtroom. It's a setting of a courtroom. And it's the judge declaring you righteous and innocent. So you think of what you deserve in your sin. And then God the Father looking at you and saying, Innocent, perfect. And how can this be? Jesus' righteousness has been given to you by faith. Jesus' cross took the wrath you deserve for your sin. Through Christ and what he did on the cross, you're justified. And much more, you're going to be saved by God from the wrath of God. Because all, and the the logic here is, there's no wrath left for you. Because it's all been poured out in Christ. You're forgiven. You're set free. What mercy. That's what God's done for us in Christ. And then through faith in in Jesus, we just see that God, his mercy is just eternal mercy. He is for us and good to us forever. Look at Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is what? He's for us. Uh, Such mercy. He's for you. If you put your trust in Christ, his mind towards you is loving and positive. He's for you. And if he's for you, who can be against you? And you will have a lot of people against you. The point is not that you won't have anybody against you. It's just that they're all kind of irrelevant. Because God is for you. Let them all be against you. God is for you. God is for us. Who could be against this? And look how for you he is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. God's goal for you is to thrill you in himself. It really is. Verse 33, you're feeling condemned, you're feeling guilty. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, it's not like no one's ever going to condemn you. They will. The point is not, will they condemn you? The point is, who cares if they condemn you? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If God says, you're righteous, you're forgiven, then guess what? You are. 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. Then this great question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul works through everything. Here's the answer in verse 39. What's the answer? Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. And you know what the Greek word there means? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is for us. Just two highlights. I mean, the story of your life, if you're a Christian, in one word, mercy. Such beautiful, glorious mercy. And just by the way, if you're, uh, if you're not a Christian, you're here today, we're so happy you're here. We just I hope you can see that that's really what we're about. We're not here because we think we're good, righteous people who have it all together in ourselves. It's the opposite of what we think. We think we need Jesus Christ very much, and we're thrilled with who he is and what he's done for us. So we're people of mercy. That's one foundation in view of God's mercy. All right, what are we talking about? We're talking about DNA of true worship. On the foundation of God's mercy, what's next? Still in verse 1. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the only only thing that makes sense, Paul is saying, is if you've been saved by mercy like that, how should you now see yourself? A living sacrifice. So what does this mean? Well, one thing it means is you're no longer living for yourself, are you? You're for something else, Part of the idea of a sacrifice is something has been given up for something else. You're living for someone else. You're living for this God who's loved you and shown you such mercy. It means a lot more than that, more than I have time for right now. It means the entire sacrificial worship system of the Old Testament is fulfilled right here, which is I think is pretty cool. You have the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all, saving us from all our sins. And now all the rest of it, where's, who are the priests offering sacrifices now? It's you. And what are you offering to God, a pleasing sacrifice? Yourself. Yourself. I I find this so fascinating, amazing, wonderful. Present your, what did he say to present? Your body. Present your body as a living sacrifice. We worship with our bodies. You know, worship, you think of going to worship. Worship is not some vague feeling. It's not only singing songs on Sunday. Don't get me wrong. That is wonderful, and I love it. But it's what you do with your whole self. It's what you do with your body. It's what you do with your eyeballs and your thumbs while you're scrolling. It's what you do with your leisure time. It's what you do with your relationships. It's all your parts all the time for worship. And here's one thing you have to see this morning. Christianity gives incredible value to the body, doesn't it? Incredible value. There is no other philosophy that gives as much value to the body as this one. So much value to the body. Historically, this is unique. But in our cultural moment, you need to realize you're not just a disposable bag of chemicals. And what you do with your body is not just outside of who you are. It's, it's sacred what you do with your body, always, always. So the value of your body, let's, let's be clear, it's not how young or beautiful or healthy you are. And some of you need to be like, amen. you going to get one? <laughs> Nobody? It's not, it's not how young or beauty or healthy you are or the pleasures you can chase and experience. That's, that's not the value of the body. Your, your body is the house of your worship. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. listen to this. Do you not know your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you. That should blow you away. That the God, the holy God of the universe in some way by his Holy Spirit would dwell in this and call it holy. And then look at this. You are not your own. One thing Christians can't really say, it's my body. Well, okay, it's your body and that it's yours and not mine. But can you really say it's your, your body? Whose body is it? it? belongs to Jesus. We worship him with it. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. What price paid? What price did Jesus pay to have your body as his The cross, what a price. So we see here our person and our body are intertwined as a unity, and the body is the vessel we use to worship. So DNA of Christian living, founded on God's mercy, founded on God's mercy, we emphasize the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And we worship, what do we worship with? Our bodies. So when are you worshiping? You're always worshiping something. Worship Jesus with your body. But as we worship with our body, now number three, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. This is in verse 2 now, if you're following along in your Bible. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why do we need transformation? Because our default is conformity to the world. That's the default. What do we mean by the word world here? It's not geographical location. It's not globe. It's a system of valuing and thinking. You call it worldliness. And the the general idea of worldly thinking is that it lives without regard to God. It lives in, in hostility to God. We're gonna build a world and morality and right and wrong and everything else. Heck with God. We'll do it our own way. It's worldliness. And that is our default, is to think that way. And how much is the world preaching at you every day? Expectations, entertainment, media, education. It's just preaching at you all the time, a way to see life. But look, now that we're Christians, what do we not want to do? We do not want to conform to the world. Don't conform to the world. I, I find it interesting, nonconformity is all the rage right now, right? It's break free from the oppressive systems, religion, tradition, whatever. It is more than a little ironic that some of the most explicit nonconformists are in absolute and total conformity to the world because they're living in autonomous rebellion to the God who made and upholds them. What's the true Nonconformity. It's to belong to Jesus and to be made like Him. That's the transformation. And then there's this incredible word, be transformed. So we'll get our grammar on, get our nerd hat on just for a second. Present passive imperative. Be transformed. Some of you are giggling right now. You love grammar. Others are you of like, why are you doing why torture me? Okay. Present, what does present mean? You know, right now, here. What's passive mean? This is the interesting part. Passive, be transformed. You don't actually do this. It's happening to you. In a way, you are passive in it. It's happening now, but you're not doing it, ultimately. It's passive, and yet it's an imperative. You know what an imperative is? It's a command. Do it now. You do it. But I don't do it. That's just right. Be transformed. So basically, it's this. Lean into what God is doing in your life. Because you're already changed by his mercy. You already belong to him as a child of God. He and his truth and his goodness and his future, it's already yours all the time right now. Lean into it. Go after it. Be transformed. And you know, the, the transformation word really is amazing. It's only used a couple of places in the New Testament, and one of them is the transfiguration. Remember that story, crazy story, Jesus on the mountain. He, just, he like flexes his divinity for his disciples, and he's glowing and terrifying, and he's transformed in the sense that we see more into who he is. And guess who you're being conformed to be like? Him. God is transforming you, if you're a Christian, to be like Jesus. But here's the thing. How does it happen? At least, in part, transformation occurs as your thinking is renovated. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you're like, I just wanted to stand there and glow, you know? But no, to worship, he's transforming what you value and how you see the world in line with his truth and his mercy. You got you to gotta think biblically. Think God's thoughts after him. That's the transformation here, at least in part. And so we realize the, the Christian life is not just emotionalism. It's not just getting together to feel amazing things. No, you have to, sometimes you have to do the hard work of thinking. And that's why we don't like it sometimes, right? It's easier to watch television you don't have to think, is leave the difficulties behind. But no, founded on God's mercy, we worship with our bodies as we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to see God's truth, believe it, love, and act accordingly. So the first three, founded on God's mercy, worship with your body, transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that leads, number four, to a life of mercy. A life of mercy you're like, well, where'd you get that? I'm getting it from the rest of chapter 12. These are just the first two verses of chapter 12. And the rest of 12, and and really more after that, is about love and mercy to one another. Just a couple of examples. I mean, listen, people saved and changed by mercy present our bodies to God by the renewing of our minds, it ends up in, people, in, in us becoming people of mercy. Romans 12, 9. What? Let love be genuine. You, you've been loved by, by God like this? What should you do? You should love. Abhor. God hates evil. How should you feel about what evil? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What kind of love is this? Look at 14. Bless those who persecute you. What do you do when people persecute you? You don't even believe it, do you? You Bless them. Why would you do that? Because you are an enemy of God and Jesus died for you. That's why you would do it. Bless those, bless and do not curse Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 16, people of mercy, do not be haughty. How can you be prideful in the face of the cross? How? Instead, associate with the lowly. The the people your society doesn't value. Why would you do that? Because Jesus did that for you. Associate with the lowly. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never, never what? Never avenge yourself. Don't we do that all the time? Our words, our attitudes. We can't do that. Why? Why can't we do it? Because of the mercy shown to us. Already we're starting to think differently. We're thinking in light of God and his mercy, and so we've got to live in a certain way, Okay. So that's the the DNA of true worship, founded on mercy, worship with your body as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind and live a life of mercy to others. That ought to be things we are each passionate about, we want to live in, right, together. Well, obviously, these truths have enormous implications for everything you can think of. Especially issues surrounding, or at least including issues surrounding these hard issues, right? We don't... We don't like to talk about it, we don't want to think about it, but issues of abortion, issues of human life. It's painful, it's difficult. But we want to have Christian minds. And, and I just want to focus on two things in, our time, in, in my time this morning. I want to think about a Christian view of the body, and then, of course, mercy. The body and mercy. So I'm going to get a, I'm gonna get a little, little nerdy here with you. What does our world think about the body? What does our cultural moment say about the body? Uh, I think scholar Nancy Piercy puts it well. Listen to this. Piercy says, secular thought today assumes a body person split with the body defined in the fact realm by empirical science. Uh, the, the material body, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights. This dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. You think that's true? Personhood and the body divorced has massive implications for human rights. Because instead of just saying humans have rights, then we would say, well, it's personhood that grants you rights. Oh, and how are you going to define that? And so now, well, the body is just material. You could be human and somehow deserve less rights and protections than other humans based on how much personhood you have, you see? Let me give you a couple of cultural examples, and I think you'll feel it if you don't quite if you're not quite tracking yet. Here's an article in Salon, and the title of the article is this So what if abortion ends life? I'm old enough to remember pro-life people trying to convince pro-choice people that the fetus is human. And and modern pro-choice narratives, you'll listen to one, they're not even arguing about whether or not it's human anymore because the science is so glaringly obvious that it's human. Listen to this. This is what the author writes. She's pro-choice. Here we go. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. This, This is painful. I'm sorry, but we need to think about it. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey about the life, around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. And I, you know, I'm, I'm smirking when I read that because that's, that's what I've said, and I, I appreciate her honesty. Because listen, I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid, right? I, I feel you. She also wrote, I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Listen to this. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same? Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. This is This is shocking to me because this is a pro-choice advocate saying this. She's being very honest about human life. But listen, yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. And listen carefully. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the what? Non-autonomous entity inside of her. Do you see what she's doing? It is the, it, this is the cultural view of the body. The body and personhood are separate. She's admitting that this is a human body, but it's not an autonomous person. Do you see? This is the separation. And therefore, because it's not fully a person, Look at the last life, it's chilling. Uh, The last line, a fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. So here, here we are, we appreciate the honest truth. We know scientifically fetus is just young human. It's, they're humans, but the child is not fully a person the danger The danger level is who's the committee that that decides who's what's enough personhood? And instead of a view of life, right a, a Christian view of the good life would be, the more vulnerable and helpless a person is, the more vow, the more it's a life worth sacrificing for. We'd sacrifice for that person. but this article said no. The less developed person is a life worth sacrificing. And it's actually the word of sacrifice, human sacrifice. Wow, that's one example. I'll give you another example. I just, I don't want you to think it's just, well, I found the most ra- radical you know, article that happened to fit with what I'm trying to say to you. So here's, here's one more just to show I I think Nancy Piercy's right. This is a broad, this is is the way our world is thinking about the body. When he was running for president in 2004, John Kerry was pressed on abortion, and he agreed that life begins at conception. But look what he said. The preborn baby is not the form of life that takes personhood in the terms that we have judged it to be. It's the same idea. I agree it's human, but we have judged that this human does not have personhood. And therefore, because, yes, it's human, but because it doesn't have personhood, what can we do? Whatever we want. And so there's, there's the split between the body and personhood. And and really when you when you hear when you hear that, you know, this is not the form of life that takes personhood in the terms that we have judged it to be, that idea, that that isn't that at the undercurrent of every system of oppression and injustice the world has ever seen. Yes, this person's a human. But I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C to them, because I see myself as or my group as more valuable than, than they are. That's how it works. A life worth sacrificing. Wow. Well, obviously, it's a problem for human rights. I'm going to leave it there. But just as you think about how the world views the body and separating the body from personhood, And you're realizing that's a real problem for human rights, but it has enormous implications. We could go into sexuality on this issue. It's just your body. We could go into transgenderism on this issue, human rights. But most of all, it's about our worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. What's a Christian view on personhood and the body? Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then this next line, so curious. Male and female, he created them. Just keep it really simple. How do you know someone's male or female, generally speaking? It's their body, embodied, persons, in bodies. Intertwined, these things are together. You can't, you can't totally divorce personhood and the body. Of course, we are more than just our bodies, right? I want to say that. If a Christian dies, you know, her soul goes to be with the Lord, right? And her body is dust and ashes. But is that design? And is that eternal? No, that's only temporary. The Bible sees that as an alien, unnatural situation. When Jesus comes back, what are we going to get? Bodies. And we live in those bodies forever. No, the the Christian view, the body and personhood are intertwined together, which means if you are a human in any way, shape, or form, you have personhood. What about handicaps or development? We don't care. You're made in the image of God. There's a soul. There's a personhood intertwined with that body. And think about this. Jesus took on a body. How incredible is that? Jesus Christ was a preborn fetus. Born to a teen mom out of wedlock. He was God in the flesh. Colossians 2 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. What? Bodily. And when he paid for our sins, it, it wasn't vague or ethereal. First Peter 2:24, He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So we don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to, we want to see the incredible value of the body and the unity of personhood and the body, which means this. As we receive God's design, as we think biblically, we acknowledge that any human being, despite their size, despite their level of development, or environment, or dependency, or poverty, or wantedness, is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity, value, respect, and mercy. Amen? That's Christian thinking, just to think about mercy for a moment. I have no time to develop this at all, but our cultural moment has no resources regarding forgiveness. Read Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness. It's really good. And you'll just see how the, the worldview and the, and the pulse of our present moment has no resources for grace and forgiveness. And then when we think in light of this oppressive system of abortion, you know, one study announced uh, about 65% of post-abortive women in America say they felt pressured by others. It's wretched. It's wretched. You know, I, I'm going off script here. I think abortion is patriarchy. You know, when you heard some feminists and when Roe went down, they said, fine, we're not going to have sex anymore. And I was like, "Finally," <laughs> because, because this is this is a man's way to have sex without responsibility. It's patri- it, It's it's evil patriarchy. And sixty five percent, felt they felt pressured. Get you pregnant and pressure you. Seventy eight percent said they felt guilty afterwards. It's ugly, right? And we all, being a human being connected to one another, we're all touched by this, implicated by this. Somebody we know somewhere, right? Oh, we have these scars. We have these pains. God only knows what some of you are thinking right now. The point is, we need mercy so bad. (laughs) We need to receive mercy, forgiveness, cleansing. Hebrews 10.10, look at the will of God for you in Christ. By the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Receive that mercy. Confess your sin, your brokenness, your pain, and see Jesus living, dying, and rising, receiving, healing you, sanctified, washed clean, made holy, offering forgiveness, he died for us, he loves us, he receives us. Having received mercy, well, now what do we want to do? Show mercy. We gotta show mercy. You know, every once in a while you hear, oh, you Christians talk about being pro-life, then why don't you do something about it? And you know what my response to that is? They do. There are roughly twice as many pro-life pregnancy centers in America as there are abortion clinics. And unlike Planned Parenthood, they don't get government funds. And they are mostly operated and supported by Christians. Could we do better being people of mercy? Of course. Of course. But are God's people people of mercy? Yes, they are. And so that's why I've invited, uh, we, we bring in Horizon Pregnancy Clinic to, uh, to be with us on Sanctity of Life. Sunday, and, and t- today, my friend Angel's here, and I've t- I promised her that you are a friendly and generous audience, amen, right? But Horizon Pregnancy Center is one way, right, that we can apply showing mercy, because they are a merciful place. They offer wonderful mercy to mothers, fathers, kiddos. In the midst of these vulnerable pregnancies and the decisions, no matter what decision these moms make, Horizon's offering mercy. And so one way for us to think about these things and want to live in God's mercy is to support or join them in their efforts. So we like to support them financially, uh, and then maybe for some of you, you might support them in different ways. You might volunteer or something like that. But enough of me. Here's to wrap it up. How do we live as Christians? Founded on God's mercy, worship God with your body as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, and live a life of showing mercy to others I want to invite Angel to come up and tell us about God's mercy in her life and through Horizon. Let's give her a hand. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.